You are listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast, the weekly show where we take a look at some epic marketing failures, along with some pretty amazing brand rescues and comebacks. And now your hosts, Nico and Chad. Hey, Chad, did you know that Coca-Cola is a 131-year-old company? I knew it was old, but I didn't realize 131 years. Nor did I. And it actually began in a soda fountain, of all things, in downtown Atlanta in 1886. Oh, that's cool. Which I think is also interesting because today the distribution of soda fountains is massive. But that's actually the first time Coke was served in a soda fountain. Hmm. In fact, it was May 8th, the year that John S. Pimbleton created Coca-Cola and served the Jacobs Pharmacy. <laughs> well, we're a long ways from those days when uh, the burger counter at the pharmacy was the social gathering hole, right? Yeah, we sure are. And a fun fact about this, during the first year, only nine drinks a day were sold, which is roughly 8,285 drinks for the entire year. So to put it in perspective for you, today, consumers across the world enjoy 19,400 Coke products every, wait for it, second. 19,400 per second? That's crazy. That is crazy. That's a massive jump. That is a massive jump. Well, it's 131 years. They had a runway. (laughs) They had some time to build up to that. Yeah. But this number would not be in a reality if this story that we're about to unpack didn't really unfold the way that it did. Yeah, that's right. Basically, Coke made a series of really good decisions after one really bad one. And that became essentially a textbook marketing rescue. And I think for most people, Coca-Cola is such an iconic, well-loved brand. I mean, I know it is you know, for me growing up uh, that you don't think of words like the worst marketing disaster in history in relation to Coca-Cola. So, Nico, I know you love storytelling. You know, we're both super into it. And I think this is such a great story because it shows even the biggest, the best companies in the world with the most sophisticated and polished marketers can get it wrong from time to time. And Coke really found this out when it launched New Coke back in 1985. But importantly, that doesn't have to be the end of the story when things go wrong. Yeah, and researching this episode was really, really fun because most of the research and content and books and all all the opinions about this talks about this was the biggest marketing failure to date. But the way that we think about it is one of the biggest rescues. And I know you need a failure to have a rescue. Sure. But to your point, this was based on a bad decision, but the decisions after that was just really, really smart and bold. So let's start. So let's set the scene. In 1975, Pepsi launched a campaign called the Pepsi Challenge. And throughout this whole Pepsi Challenge campaign, it was a blind test of the two different products, the two different sodas, Pepsi and Coke. And in the United States, it started to show that people actually preferred Pepsi over Coca-Cola. Interesting. And this, yep. And in this campaign, you can imagine Pepsi milked this like crazy. <laughs> sure. So as a result of this, Pepsi started gaining ground over Coca-Cola in the United States. They started chipping away slowly but surely over Coca-Cola's market share. In 1985, Coca-Cola's share led over the chief competitor in the flagship market, the US, and their flagship product, yep. Coke, started slipping for 15 consecutive years. Well, that's a a long and steady slide. Sure is. So the customer awareness of Coca-Cola started dipping, right? And the board and the CEO and the executive team, they noticed. Sure. So in desperate times, calls for desperate measures. So they announced in 1985 that they're gonna yank the 100-year-old recipe of Coca-Cola and introduced 
a new product called New Coke. Wow. So they're not introducing a new product. They're literally just completely pulling the old one. Absolutely. And at this time, the Coca-Cola CEO said in a press release, this is the surest move the company has ever made. And they launched this with a massive integrated full 360 ad campaign. So when New Coke launches, Robert Goizetta, Coke's CEO and chairman said, quote, some may choose to call this the boldest single marketing move in the history of the packaged goods business. We simply call it the surest move ever made. Coca-Cola president Donald Keough echoed the certainty. I've never been as confident about a decision as I am about the one we're announcing today. So Coke's market research team had gone through this massive research project in which they conducted over 200,000 taste tests that confirmed that subjects preferred new Coke over both the 100-year-old recipe and over Pepsi. So this is like really critical, right? They, they get this data that tells them that this new Coke would outperform both of those two pieces. And 200,000 tests, that's pretty thorough. That's not a small sample size. And so this is the point in the story where things really start to get interesting as a few critical kind of mistakes were made. So first, the taste tests were done with just a few ounces of soda. But uh, that's definitely not how people, especially Americans, because, you know, we have to do everything big in America, uh, how we consume products, especially soda. So we drink it in 12, 16, 32, and even 64 ounce big gulp servings. So, you know, a much sweeter, more sugary drink, which was what the new Coke uh, recipe was like, may be okay in small doses in those, you know, two ounce servings that they served in the taste tests. But in large amounts, you know, that could actually become a turnoff if you're having to drink, you know, large volumes of very sweet, sugary tasting fluids. So what you're saying is they had an abundance of quantitative research and missed out on the whole qual side, the quantitative side, the behavioral side, right? Yeah. So they did have some qualitative research, but it had some holes in it and it wasn't taken as seriously as the quantitative research because of the fact that. Uh, the quantitative research was so large. The sample size was so large. It was 200,000 taste tests versus a couple of small focus groups. Yeah, so the reason that they were so confident, all those quotes we just heard, is that as any good marketer, they made these decisions on big data. And boy, they had a lot of big data here, 200,000 sample set. Yeah, exactly. But market research isn't just a numbers game, right? So it's kind of like when you go to the doctor they don't make a diagnosis in most cases based on a single number on your tests, right? They might run a whole panel of 20 different tests to, you know, figure out what all of your different levels are, you know, of different chemicals or biomarkers in your blood. They'll do a, a physical exam, right? They'll look at your lifestyle and open up your chart and look at your medical history. So in medical terms, it's called diagnosing the whole person. Diagnosing the whole can? <laughs> yes, the entire <laughs> bottle. Uh, so they actually had conducted some focus groups and, and surveys. And in the focus groups, 10 to 12% of testers actually felt angry and alienated at the thought of changing the recipe so significantly that they actually said they might stop drinking Coke because of it. And these people were also really influential in the focus groups exerting kind of like indirect peer pressure on the other participants and influencing them a little bit. Interesting. Yeah. But the surveys they ran were far less negative. Yeah. The surveys lacked the social dynamic, right? If you think about it, the feeling towards the brand or the brand affinity, 
it's like looking at a puzzle and there's just a few pieces missing and mm. you're making it a, a informed decision based on what you're seeing. Yeah. Yeah. So this is actually when they had three different choices to make essentially, right? So based on the data they were seeing, they could either completely replace the old product with the new better tasting drink or keep the existing drink and roll out an additional drink with a different name, kind of like what they did with Cherry Coke and, and Diet Coke. Mm -hmm. Or lastly, they could take a gradual phased approach over time to it. Right. So like most business situations, this was super complex. During this time as well, Coca-Cola was actually in the middle of various lawsuits from their bottlers over the syrup pricing policies. And Coke was very worried about them cannibalizing their own sales and obviously about Pepsi potentially taking advantage of all this. Sure. So they only began launching a variety of additional flavors like Diet Coke three years before 1982. And when they were launching Cherry Coke at the same time, a new Coke in 1985, they were just worried it's going to be too disruptive for them to have both of yeah. them at the same time, right? Yep. So this was before the massive amount of flavors that we have today. Right. If you walk into any grocery store, there's a whole Coke fridge, basically. Yeah, back then it was like Coke was the only game in town, at least from Coca-Cola. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's actually a really important nuance here is that the insights were not actually wrong. Both Pepsi's taste tests as well as Coke's tests and surveys confirmed it. The data set was just kind of an incomplete piece of the puzzle that didn't factor in the power of the fact that humans are social animals, right? And yep. we have very deep cultural and emotional attachments. And so that's really easy for us to see now because of the impact of social media, but it wasn't so obvious in the 80s. So what happens next is actually really big. It's April 23rd, 1985, when New Coke launches. In the Coca-Cola company's own words, quote, to hear some tell it, April 23rd, 1985, was a day that will live in marketing infamy, spawning consumer angst the likes of which no business has ever seen. Well, it kind of ha it kind of happened, right? Here we are, thirty five years later, still talking about it. <laughs> yeah, it's very this is amazing, very prophetic statement. Yep. So the emphasis on the sweeter taste of the new flavor also ran very contrary to all the previous Coke advertising, in which, for example, spokesman Bill Cosby had touted Coke's less sweet taste as a reason to prefer it over mm. Pepsi. Yep. Another big lesson here, know who you are as a brand and why people care about you and make sure that you don't forget that. Yeah. Like you said, their confidence was super high mm -hmm. in spite of the fact that they were departing from what made them the most iconic brand in the beverage industry. And granted, you know, they were kind of going through this slow de decline and there was kind of a lack of interest in the cola and soda category in general at the time. But, you know, the fear of a competitor creeping up on you and gaining ground yeah. is powerful. Yeah, absolutely. So in Mark Pendergrass's book, For God, Country, and Coca-Cola, The Definitive History of the Great American Soft Drink and the Company That Makes It, he recounts that on the day New Coke launched, they had a press conference at New York City's Lincoln Center that was pretty difficult since Pepsi had actually very cunningly fed questions to reporters before the press conference. But if you think about it, that's like preparing for an interview. You you interview the questions beforehand, right? They should have known something was going to happen over there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You've got to come prepared for the worst, right? Yeah. So one of the reporters asked whether Diet Coke would also be reformulated, quote, assuming new Coke is a success. 
To which the CEO, mm. yeah, to which the CEO Goizetta curtly replied, no. And I didn't assume this is a success. This is a success. So the company's stock went up on the announcement and market research actually showed 80% of the American public was aware of the change within days. It is pretty incredible if you think about it. The majority of companies will sell their left arm to get 80% of the American public <laughs> be aware of a new product that they launch within a span of a couple of days. It's truly remarkable. Yeah, it's just amazing. And, and the backlash was equally as remarkable, despite the fact that most people buying new Coke were kind of like buying it out of curiosity to try the new flavor. And there was actually kind of overall a, a fairly warm initial reception to new Coke. But over the next 79 days, Coke received over 40,000 calls and letters, including one letter delivered to Goizetta, the CEO, that was addressed to, quote, Chief Dodo <laughs> of the Coca-Cola company. Wow. <laughs> so the company hotline 1-800-GET-COKE received over 1,500 calls a day compared to around 400 before the change. And a psychiatrist that Coke had actually hired to listen in on calls told executives that some people sounded as if they were discussing the death of a family member. That is incredible. And there was a small but extremely vocal group of objectors. Mainly, they were people from the southeastern United States that considered Coca-Cola to be a vital part of their regional identity and felt alienated by the new formula. So they actually viewed the company's decision to change the formula through the prism of the Civil War as kind of like another surrender to the Yankees. Wow. Yeah, they actually staged protests. And there was another group that staged these grassroots protests. They were called the Old Cola Drinkers of America. <laughs> who were founded by Gay Mullins, who was a Seattle retiree who was looking for something else to do and wanted to start a public relations firm. And he saw an opportunity in this. So he borrowed $120,000 to start the organization to lobby Coke to reintroduce the formula or sell it to someone else. And he even filed a class action lawsuit but it was actually very quickly dismissed by federal district judge Walter McGovern, who said he liked the taste of Pepsi. Oh, he got the wrong judge. <laughs> yes, he lost in the game of judge this, roulette. This story could have gone a whole different route if the judge actually preferred Coke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they got a little lucky there. Also comically, while the lawsuit was in process, Gay was actually trying to get Coke to be his client so he could help them reintroduce classic Coke. Even more ironically, in a couple of informal blind taste tests that he did, he couldn't even distinguish the difference between old and new Coke in this blind taste test. So needless to say, Coke didn't hire him. Hmm. So now it's mid-June and the temperatures are starting to rise. Not just from a, from a temperature point of view, but also from a customer point of view. <laughs> yeah. So Coke is leveling among its customers after this initial bump that you just talked about. And the initial fear is starting to creep in to the executive board because they can actually see that their sales are plateauing where mm. usually in summer it spikes randomly. Yeah. In addition, not only the customers were complaining, but now the bottlers are also complaining and they were starting to express concern of actually selling this new thing to their end products. Yeah. 
partly because they were saying they were using the real thing, which was the ad campaign up to this point, and now they had to change the real thing to all the restaurants <laughs> and gas stations, and they were starting to get pushback from you know the B2B sales. Yeah, so something that's supposed to be constant and unchanging is now inconstant and changing. Yeah, it's no longer the real thing. Yeah. It's now the new real thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so there's these 20 bottlers that are still suing Coca-Cola, and they actually use this to their advantage in their legal arguments over the syrup pricing. So Coca-Cola had argued in its defense when the lawsuit was originally filed that the formula's uniqueness and difference from Diet Coke justified different pricing policies from Diet Coke, which is you know, why everyone was so upset. But if the new formula was simply just a high fructose sweetened Diet Coke, the bottler said, you know, well, Coca-Cola can't argue that the formula is unique at that point. So with the bottlers, specifically in the South, they started getting personal backlash Jeez. from their families and relatives about pushing the new Coke. Can you believe that? So people knew they, it's crazy. Yeah, people knew they worked for Coke and they started getting like personal backlash, not just from their customers. So in June 23rd, a small bunch of bottlers actually got together in private with the Coca-Cola executives to really air their grievances. So at this point, Coke is starting to face pressure from their customers. Their sales is not spiking. It's supposed to be in summer. And now their distribution units or their bottlers are really upset with this as well. Yeah. So if you don't have bottlers, you can't really do business, right? So switching back to the old formula, basically at that point, just changes from if to when. So finally, the Coca-Cola board decided that enough is enough. So they set these plans in motion to bring back the old Coke. And this is why this is a marketing rescue textbook story and not a failure. Yeah, because of what happens now. Yep. And they acted on all the information, which is a very bold. Right. So company president Donald Keogh reveals uh, years later in the documentary, The People versus Coke, that was uh, from 2002, they realized that this was the only right thing to do when they visited a small restaurant in Monaco. And the owner proudly said to them that they served the real thing. It's real Coke, offering them a chilled six and a half ounce glass bottle of the original Coca-Cola. On the afternoon of July 11th, 1985, Coca-Cola executives held a press conference yet again, and they announced, wait for it, they're bringing Coca-Cola back and they're, uh -huh. brand, and they're branding it Coca-Cola Classic. Nice. A quote from the COO, Donald Keogh, I just love this quote. He said, our boss is the customer. We want them to know we are really sorry. And this is 79 days after they launched the new Coke. Wow. Very bold, right? Yeah. This was such a big deal that a lot of networks actually broke their regular programming with a special <laughs> bulletin announcing this. ABC News anchor Peter Jennings interrupted General Hospital, the massive soap opera at the time, with a special bulletin to share the news. On the floor of the U.S. Senate, David <laughs> wow. Pryor called the reintroduction a meaningful moment in U.S. history. So the company hotline received 31,600 calls in the first two days after the announcement. So the natural question here for me is, what is Pepsi doing this whole time? Because you have to think that they're seeing blood in the water now, right? Absolutely. So Pepsi tried to take advantage of this and they ran a number of campaigns mocking Coke for touting Pepsi as the real thing after all. And one of these commercials, there's a girl sitting on the floor having a dialogue with herself about Pepsi and Coke. And let's play that spot quickly so you can hear it because it's just gold. Can somebody out there tell me why Coke did it? 
Why have they changed? First they said they were the real thing, then they said they were it. Then kablooey, they changed. Now I'm going to try my first Pepsi. But I still want to know why Coke changed. Mm. Now I know why. Pepsi, the choice of a new generation. Yeah, so Pepsi is basically giddy at the softball that's just been lobbed their way. And Roger Enrico, who was the director of Pepsi's North American operations, declares this company-wide holiday and takes out a full-page ad in the New York Times proclaiming that Pepsi had won the long-running Cola Wars. Super premature, but, uh, you know, it makes for a great headline. Yep. So after the new Coke announcement, PepsiCo gives its employees the day off, saying, by today's action, Coke has admitted that it's not the real thing. And this next quote is amazing. He says, These two products, Pepsi and Coke, have been going at it eyeball to eyeball. And in my view, the other guy just blinked. Oh, I love that. That's so great. And I, I remember watching that clip, and he had like sideburns all the way down to his cheek. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, just, it's just amazing. It's the, the serious stuff. The theater behind it, yeah. Yes. So the question here is, how did Pepsi actually benefit from all of this? They did benefit from a short term, but Pepsi gained very few long-term converts from Coca-Cola throughout this whole thing. Mm. They saw a sales jump of 14% increase from the previous year, which was actually one of their record years when this, when this all went down. Wow. But in the long run, Coca-Cola market share really grew exponentially past them yet again. In an interview of SKY, Sergio Zyman, the Coca-Cola former head of marketing, said, quote, Yes, it infuriated the public, cost a lot of money, and lasted 79 days before we reintroduced Coca-Cola Classic. Still... New Coke was so successful because it revitalized the brand and reattached the public to Coke. So Pepsi won the battle, but lost the war. Yeah, this is just such a powerful example of the same type of blind spot that Coke had, you know, at the time around understanding the emotional and social behavioral dynamics at play here. So Pepsi's critical failure was in not facilitating a complete customer conversion, right? So, you know, they had this super catchy ad, they lobbed a few zingers, but they weren't able to really translate that into being able to change these deeply seated lifetime uh, brand preferences that people had. So let's like stop for a second here and really picture the customer journey, right? And the, yep. the gaping holes in marketing tactics, you know, to address the entirety of the journey. Imagine for a second, you're a lifetime Coke drinker, Nico. So you've been drinking Coke for 30 to 40 years. Your parents drank Coke, your whole family's into it. You take the Pepsi challenge because you saw the commercials and you actually think, hey, this Pepsi stuff is pretty good. I mean, it's no Coke, but it's good. So over the next couple of days, you try another Pepsi or two and that was fun, but then you simply just do what's habitual, right? Mm -hmm. Like you keep picking up that beloved Coke, especially when all Coke did was make it less distinguishable mm -hmm. between Coke and Pepsi. So, you know, obviously it's a lot easier now with digital to engage, you know, beyond just simply like disruptive ad messages that were really the only scalable options back then. But this is, I think, a really important lesson for today's marketers that even though Coke didn't realize it at the time, they were actually... I think a lifestyle brand. Absolutely. And I'm not a Coke or a Pepsi drinker. I never have been. Which do you prefer? Coke. Why? 
uh, it's not as sweet, and I like that that uh, less sweet taste. And you're gonna say that? Did you know that Coke has 12 teaspoons of sugar and Pepsi only has seven? That is incredible. Yeah, yeah there goes your whole little world. <laughs> anyway, we digress. So yeah, and with today's social media platforms available to us, with Instagram and vlogging and influencers. And just social media as a whole, all the digital tools that we have to our disposal, there's no real excuse not to engage with our customers in a much more meaningful way. There's a little bit of a myth that customers act rationally. It's a very well-known adage that sales with emotional selling just simply works better. You know, emotionally beats logic with when the chips are basically all down. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if you're a lifestyle brand, right, and you're trying to unseat another lifestyle brand, you know, the only way to unseat a lifestyle brand is to provide an alternative to that lifestyle, right? A more attractive lifestyle and kind of help facilitate that transition, right? So that means engaging on a daily basis beyond the actual usage of the product itself, right? It literally means helping people build a new personal identity. So, you know, that has to tap into culture and self-image and, and really be a constant presence yeah. Besides just being, you know, a, a, a zippy campaign slogan. And this is where the market research went wrong initially because they didn't measure the impacts of the brand infinity or the rooted memories or the affiliation that people have with the actual brand. Right. These emotions lie really deep in our brain. And they're anchored into the actual brand name of Coke, right? Versus just an ad campaign. But the reality is that without the emotional anchor, it's just not going to drive any change. And yep. that's exactly what played out over here. Yep. So in the end of 1985, Coke Classic was outselling both New Coke and Pepsi. And this was just six months after they rolled out. Coke's sales had increased more than twice the rate of Pepsi wow. at this point. <laughs> and again, this didn't happen automatically, right? This was a series of really good decisions that the management team did to steer in that direction. And this is why exactly why we talk about this being a classic rescue versus a failure. So first of all, they didn't just have this sunk cost fallacy, like, you know, we've got to double down on our, on our mistakes because we've already spent so much money. So right. if you think of like what happened in episode one with American Airlines, they did exactly just that. They didn't course correct and they just kept on piling on more and more and more on the mistake that they made. And Coke did the exact opposite here. Right. And it could have been very easy for them to fall into that sunk cost fallacy, right? So, I mean, anything as big as new Coke had to be super expensive to launch. And just the cost related to like supply chain logistics alone, you know, it's mind blowing how huge that must have been. And we don't know, uh, I can't remember it. We didn't ever find the amount here, how much they spent on this, right? Or how much they lost. Yeah, no, we couldn't find anything from Coca-Cola in terms of them ever really like admitting exactly how much they lost as a result of New Coke. But we do know that they spent $4 million in development. And after deciding to pull New Coke from the shelves, we're left with over $30 million in just unwanted concentrate, just the syrup, yeah. um, you know, after the fact. So, you know, there's got to be a lot more beyond that. First, it's not easy and it takes a lot of humility. Second, they really listened to their customer year and they listened to their bottlers and they looked at their sales data. So they took all the different aspects into account when making these decisions. Coca-Cola's director of corporate communications, Carlton Curtis, realized over time that customers were more upset about the withdrawal of the old formula than the taste of the new one. 
So it'd be interesting. interesting. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah. And then thirdly, they effectively leverage their learnings. So they learn to fail forward, which is something that you and I talk about a lot yeah. in our both personal and our and our corporate lives. They use these learnings for future rollouts, and uh, we can actually see that in today's marketing, which I think is another bold move uh, that they, with a partnership that they have with Netflix and Stranger Things. Yeah, I, I totally agree. That was equal parts brilliant and self-deprecating, actually. So for our listeners, if you're one of the few people who haven't seen Stranger Things, it's this really cool period piece set in the 1980s in suburban America. And Coke partnered with Netflix to feature new Coke on the show and coordinated to bring the flavor back for a limited time during the third season of Stranger Things, which is actually set in the summer of 1985. Perfect. Yeah, so they're just riding this massive wave of this 80s nostalgia that's coming back through Stranger Things. But they're actually launching an actual, the old or the old new Coke during this time too, right? Yes. You can buy the product. Yes, they made the product available. Didn't you say they had a lot of syrup sitting in a vault somewhere? Are you sure they're not <laughs> repurposing that? $30 million worth of expired <laughs> syrup sitting somewhere. So it is amazing. They're taking their digital marketing and tying into the real life sensing of their customers, their senses drinking the old new Coke, which is just incredible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And Stuart Cronage, the president of Coke's sparkling business unit and uh, SVP of marketing for Coca-Cola North America, said in a May 2019 interview for CNN Business, quote, bringing new Coke back is a way for Coca-Cola to not take ourselves too seriously. Maybe a while ago we wouldn't have done this, but we're changing and trying to innovate in ways that are beyond traditional new products. This is a cultural innovation. Buying a 30-second ad to drop into a certain time frame is not as valuable as it once was, Cronish said. The world is changing into streaming and non-ad platforms and subscription-based platforms. So it's important for us to make sure that we are where our consumers' eyeballs and hearts and spirits are. The new promotion is designed to break the internet, she said. I mean, it's just really, it's amazing. It just shows such incredible confidence and, you know, not the kind of confidence, you know, you typically think of, but, you know, this is, I think, a, a little bit more of a correct picture of, of what confidence really is. It's not as much bravado, in my opinion, as it is, you know, just the humility to be authentic and realize that it's actually our struggles that is what makes us relatable. And I think that's just such a powerful brand insight. Right. So Coke eventually rebranded the new formula as Coke 2 in 1990 before they eventually abandoned it completely in 2002. Besides this fiasco, Coca-Cola emerged from this whole fiasco stronger than they've ever been. Amazing. And of course, due to the internet, there are a gazillion conspiracy theories that the new <laughs> Coke failure was purposeful marketing. But Donna Keogh, the chief operating officer, we found a quote from him where he said, some cynics say that we planned the whole thing. The truth is that we're not that dumb and we're not that smart, which is, I just love that quote. It's very self-aware. Yep. So really it was Coca-Cola that weren't very crystal clear about their insights. And initially they made all these good decisions based on floor data, but their willingness for them to take massive risks to one year is just outstanding. The most amazing thing for me throughout this whole story is that the leadership could pivot the company on a dime. Yeah. So once they had information from their customer, from their sales and from their bottlers, they made really big moves and changed everything around, which is just absolutely incredible. Yeah. I mean, there really is like a flip side 
to the coin in this story, isn't there? That like, you know, what often is billed as the greatest marketing disaster in history actually was the catalyst that allowed Coke to crush Pepsi and put a stop to the market share bleeding that they were experiencing. Yeah, there's definitely something to be said about the value of all this free attention that they received. And again, 35 years later, here we are still talking about it. You know, there's an old adage, there's no such thing as bad press, but it's, it isn't really actually true if you think about it. If you don't have a way to harness that, that negative press and take advantage of it, then it's actually not good for you. So this took Coke as a stagnant brand and then turned it into one of the most debatable topics for every virtually every American family. <laughs> right, like just around the dinner table every night. They would be talking would just, about yeah. Coke. Yeah, and that's exactly why I think the word provocative is used like 24 seven in advertising award shows, right? Uh, it's virtually impossible to win an award without a provocative ad campaign. Not that, you know, that actually means good advertising, but it just shows the value of, of how important it is within the advertising industry. Yes, and there's an actual, another popular ad age that goes something like this. The only thing worse than bad press is no press. <laughs> yeah. Especially for a challenger brand that doesn't have that high level awareness. Controversial press can give a massive boot of awareness within that market positioning. But as we've seen throughout this entire story, this is definitely not for the faint of heart. Yeah, you're right. And uh, this whole thing is just so fascinating to me. Yeah, and I think this is a great place for us to wrap up episode three. Thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoyed as much as we did. Speak to you next week. You've been listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast. This show is hosted by Nico Katsia and Chad Childress, the co-founders of KPI Agency, a marketing rescue agency. Be sure to visit marketingrescuepodcast.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, contact the hosts, and discover fantastic bonus content.